It's October 28th, 2015, and welcome to another edition of Bite Marks Cafe, where we serve you the first bite of today's technology. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. Starting us off this hour, Isis Chen will tell us about a fashion tech workshop along with Noah Hafner. Then Rob Kelso will join us by phone to tell us about the Lunar Landing Pad Project. And finally, for the remainder of the hour, we'll talk to Kanisa Serafin, Joanna Filipoff, and Anushka Fauci, and they'll talk about this project called Opihi. It's the project about Hawaii's intertidal zone. Of course, we always welcome your thoughts or questions, so be ready to call in or tweet after the break. And, of course, we'll start here with uh, Isis Chen and Noah Hafner, and you guys are both from High Capacity, our Mm -hmm. favorite uh, makerspace, and there's a cool project that you guys are working on that kind of brings together fashion and tech. Isis, tell us all about it. All right. I guess, like, um, initially this whole fashion tech um, thing came about was, like, uh, I think we talked about in an conference Mm -hmm. that uh, it was going to be a competition, but somehow down the line it was just hard putting such a giant event together. And because of November is such a busy Mm -hmm. month in Hawaii, like, you know, with Fashion Month, with, like, HIF and all that sort of Oh, and Startup Weekends. Mm-hmm. That's coming up. Yeah, it's super busy. So we ended up with just a workshop and um, a workshop followed by a showcase. And best of all, this this workshop is going to be led by Anouk Ruprit. And she is a couture fashion tech designer. That um, It was kind of cool to see how far she came to, I don't know, today. So Anouk, is, where is she from? She's a Dutch designer, uh, Dutch uh-huh, from the fashion tech designer. From, from the Netherlands? Yes, from the Netherlands. And what was really interesting was back in 2010, I think, like um, when I was like kind of bored a little bit, I was kind of curious about tech and art, mm-hmm. kind of like mix. I think I saw some of her work and I was like, oh, wow, that's so cool, like mix of ink and mess. And I like to see more of that. And then so I kind of noticed that 2010 to 2012 is like the most experimental phase Mm -hmm. where we have the connect, the hacking of that, the interactivities. That really got me like really, really like interested in like just things like what are the possibilities we can do with like tech. And so kind of just that was just my phase of just exploration and like um, just kind of came about with so many different like fields and organizations I've like went through Mm -hmm. and today is just like I think I'm really like focused like I want to develop more tech and kind of like push the field more intersection with tech and so that's what came about was having this fashion tech workshop yeah you you are always sort of uh sort of experimenting in that intersection between tech and art yeah, because I really feel like experiments are really, exp- I mean, it's really important to have experimental sp- um, spaces because that's what leads and develops into innovation. Mm-hmm, because mm-hmm. if you don't have spaces like that, you don't have, um, you don't really get to develop, develop and play with tools mm. and kind of see, um, kind of even like um, take up different disciplines and talk to people and kind of mishmash ideas and create new explosion of ideas. I don't know. Yeah, no, like that's baby great. ideas or like spawn ideas. And, you know, Noah, clearly you're involved because you're a fashionable, very fashionable. Oh, handsome too. Handsome don't man. forget that. <laughs> but uh, can, can you talk to us a little bit more about the tech side of it? I mean, with high capacity, in fact, um, right when you walked in earlier this afternoon, I was like, you need to teach me about these blinking LEDs and circuit boards and batteries and how that works and how you get them shipped from China and all of that. So, I mean, that sounds like 
those are some of the cool things that can be integrated into fashion. So uh, what's your, what's that side of it for this project? Well, uh, we're leaving a lot of that up to Anouk and what she has in mind mm-hmm. or the local designers and the cool ideas that they can come up with. Mm-hmm. So a lot of the support that we're going to be trying to provide for the workshop is just having some volunteers to provide some hands-on assistance with the less designy side of things. So if they decide they want to have some LEDs, they want to do this with them, they want to have some sensing, or they want to control the whole system and what it does, then they can sort of think about that and have someone help them come up with a good plan. And then hopefully some of us will be able to implement it very quickly over the course of the workshop and hopefully give them a chance to uh, learn experientially how that kind of stuff works and maybe dip their feet in just a little bit. And then hopefully they'll come back and do more in the future. I'd like to see how you might incorporate like a Arduino or a Raspberry Pi into somebody's dress or wearable. Yeah, definitely. You could play with so many things. Like you could teach it to like react to a certain response with sensors, like for instance, using a camera, mm-hmm. using um, some other sensors that detect motion or using sensors that detect like um, sound. There's like so many variations. It just depends what you want to really create an experience for people. Now, there was a there was an exhibit that took place, I think, at the uh, Bishop Museum that yes, was like a wearable, wearable. Wow, yes. Mm. Yes. They are amazing. Oh, my God. So They're were like they? Were, New was Zealand. that local? New Zealand. Oh, this yeah. New Zealand. New Zealand. Okay. They're like one of the craziest, like, craziest as in like really awesome, amazing, like just unbound, like sort of like mm-hmm. artwork by like artists that would just use interesting materials that you wouldn't even think of. And kind of like incorporate their cultural um, usage to mm-hmm. it and make it like beautiful. Are you are you in touch with some of the local designers that uh, perhaps might participate in in your workshop? I mean, I'm I'm kind of curious uh, what some of our local creative people might come up with. I am so excited to see. Um, there are some that we've received, and so like I definitely want to hear more. I, I definitely want to see more. Um, people or local fashion designers to really sign up because this is a real opportunity to like work with a new group. I mean, come on. Mm -hmm. I would never think that I ever like would just meet her. (laughs) It was just so like. So you're overwhelmed by the uh, star power, right? (laughs) Yeah, I'm totally like, wow. (laughs) Like gushing over the moment like, wow, this is happening. This is really happening. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, And not just that, but she's educating like the local fashion designers and making it very like easy and welcoming it's not intimidating at all Mm -hmm. and i think that's what we need that type of environment so that we have more intersections and you know really show that tech is really not that difficult so i mean i'm patently and clearly and the good thing we're on the radio is not a fashionable person certainly more of a tech person so i hear this uh from coming in from the fashion side how do you integrate some of these new materials and these new tools sensors and things like that um when you talk about bringing them and seeing what they come up with, is there a place for the technical side a person who doesn't even have, like many don't have, a fashionable side, Noah? Well, of course there is. And some of it would have to do with just having interesting settings for problem solving or being able to think about some of the fashion or interactions that can happen and <clears throat> getting to learn from people who have a lot of experience or uh, background in that kind of an area. And so it's not just that um, it's the fashion people will come in and they'll get something and everyone 
else just sort of sits there. Mm. It's that they get to come in, they get to do something really cool. And all the other people who are going to be there participating in the workshop and helping them, they get to experience what the fashion designers are doing while helping them. And sort of their takeaway is getting to be part of this and learning from the designers and learning from the experience as well. And the vision is that something will be created during the course of this workshop. Right? Yes. They're not, that... it's, not, it's not a fashion show in the sense that they're going to come with something that the, they just want to have finished and present. It's like, what can we do while we're here together? Yes. I mean, they're definitely not pressured um, to really, like, make something glamorous because it's a workshop. It's a, you know, like, it's a new beginner workshop. But because Anuka's very experienced with her workflow and every every sort of thing, and she has a very strong team coming with her. So, and with the support of our volunteers, I think, I'm, I'm sure that we're definitely going to see some something amazing. So well, it's not going to be like runway or something where it's going <laughs> to... Actually, it will be. End. Oh, yeah. yeah. We, will, we will be focusing on... Um, so some of the things we were thinking about, like Anuka and I were talking about, like creating a interactive sort of environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so, well, you have to come and see it. Oh, I'm yeah. I'm going to explain everything to you. Now, the geek in me wants to know, are there limitations on materials? Are you going to be able to set fire to things? Oh, like, what are whoa, we whoa, whoa. Oh, those are some things I would like to see future workshops. So <laughs> definitely let's keep continuing this. And I, part of this is really important is also about collaboration with tech and fashion. Mm-hmm, I think mm-hmm. that's that's something that you we always feel that it, it has to be just one person when really it's so much better when it's a team. So Like wh- someone take care of software, hardware. What do you guys need? You want you want volunteers? You want people to you know you want designers to, to get involved? I mean, what what do you guys need right now? So we need to support the uh, local fashion designers um, with volunteers of um, individual that could sew, a sewing person, um, a software person, uh, and a hardware person. Okay. So someone that's really comfortable doing soldering and. For software individuals, like maybe someone experienced with Arduino, XP, Twinsy, Twin Tweet. I don't even. I can't. Teensies. <laughs> yeah, Teensies. But also people who are interested in this, but maybe are a little bit worried about being able to handle all of these different aspects, they can volunteer for the workshop and they can show up beforehand. They contact us and you know, we'll, we'll set up a time to sort of do a preparation session so that once the workshop happens, everyone who's helping will already have seen the technology and have worked with it and have some familiarity, even if they haven't done so maybe by today. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm. Sounds good. So can you give us the breakdown or, uh, you know, the, the, the bullets of uh, where, when uh, this is all going to take place? Oh, yeah. Yes. It's going to be November 10, 11, 12 for workshop. And 10, 11, 12. Okay. 10, 11, 10, 11, 12 down at Manoa Innovation um, Center. Uh-huh. And... From ten to six p.m. Oh, good. Three and, days and of course, and tents. Uh, no, just kidding. <laughs> and uh, is there a is there a website we should go to like HawaiiWeblog.com? Well, it, it will. <laughs> there will be more information posted at high capacity. High capacity. High capacity. Yes. Okay. Okay. Uh, but shortly, coming up shortly. Right. It's not there yet. Yeah. It will be probably like by tomorrow. Or tonight. Well, hey, send us a, send us a link. Here. Send us a link, and then yes. uh, we'll definitely put it up at least uh, on our show notes. And I know I know a really a prolific blogger that's going to be probably blogging about <laughs> possibly, this. Possibly, possibly. Yeah. Okay. Isis and Noah, thank you very much for joining us today. Thank you very much for having us. Yeah, ditto. So we want to also now welcome on the phone Rob Kelso from the Pacific International Space Center for Exploration Science, and he's calling in from Hilo, I think. Uh, and uh, Rob, you're going to tell us about the lunar landing pad. How's it going over there on Hilo? Oh, really good. Uh, we 
got started uh, back in September and just completed at the end on September 30th the uh, first technical milestone for the uh, launch and landing pad, um, and that was to do the grading, um, leveling, and also compaction of the center part of the pad. So, what's the this um, project that you're doing? It's kind of in association with NASA. Is that correct? Right, absolutely. NASA actually came to us um, asking our involvement instead of us going to them. And the heritage of this is that back in the Apollo program, it was noted that during the descent and landing of the lunar landers onto the moon, uh, the dust uh, operated differently than on Earth. When the rocket engines interact with the dust here on Earth, we get billowing of clouds. And we see that at airports and other, you know, when you're blowing your, uh, the dirt on your driveway, for example. But on the moon, it operates very differently because of the vacuum. And what we saw was that the dust uh, comes out at extremely high velocities. Uh, and it's in a very compact sheet about three degrees off of the, uh, the horizontal. <clears throat> in fact, uh, in Apollo, we could see the tops of rocks. Uh, poking through this dust sheet where the rest of it below that was obscured. You couldn't see the surface, but you could see the top of rock. So if you landed these landers around solar rays of a encampment or outpost or habitation modules, uh, science modules, you could just decimate and blow these away. Right, Damage so you're saying, you're saying so three degrees NASA uh, off NASA decided the... that uh, the landing pad needed to be centered or stabilized. You had to make it <clears throat> a hard surface instead of very loose dust. Right. So so this uh, this three degrees off of the horizon, it's like a 360 degrees in all directions. Yeah, 360 it's, degrees, but it's, it's three degrees off the horizontal. Right, okay, um, okay horizontal, right. And it's just, Yeah, and so it, it could be anything in line of sight at that could be extremely devastated because what is a sandblaster maybe 300 meters a second mm -hmm. i'm guessing mm -hmm. and this is 2000 meters a second mm -hmm. so very destructive so, so, so the difference here in the basalt construction for this landing pad is that uh where normally you would make a landing pad uh, like a foundation out of concrete we're not using concrete we're using lunar-like or mars-like material which is the basalt material that we find here in hawaii in addition to that, where you would normally use humans to construct the landing pad, we're not using people. We're using robotics and rovers. Now, uh, a few months ago, we had covered on our show uh, an experiment in Hilo itself using this kind of lunar basalt to make a sidewalk. So is this project yep. kind of a natural extension or the next step of that experiment? That's a great question, yes. Uh, we put the lunar sidewalk in in downtown Hilo by the tennis court at Lincoln Park back uh, last March in the spring. And so this is phase two of that uh, in how we do uh, basalt construction for Moon and Mars, but now at a more complex level. Cool. Now, you, um, you know, this uh, relationship that you have with NASA, I know that the press release came out. It said it was a non-reimbursable agreement. So is NASA just giving you the blessing to move forward and, and you're kind of developing this project uh, sort of self-funded? 
via uh, Pisces? Not, not at all. It, what that means is is that uh, in typical NASA, they don't have a lot of money uh, to transfer to outside organizations. What they have is people and technical capabilities. So when it says non-reimbursable, it means that no money is exchanged. But we use we do what we do very well here at Pisces and Hawaii, and they do very uh, well what they do at uh, the Kennedy Space Center in Florida. So we work together in our strengths. So they're providing details of how we should build this lunar landscape. They're providing a robotic arm. Uh, they're designing these basalt pavers. And then what we're doing is using our rover. We're doing all the operations. Uh, we're actually fabricating the uh, basalt pavers, uh, 100 of them, to make the center point of a bullseye mm-hmm. uh, that's robotically deployed by a uh, robotic arm. So, there's so the, the... it just means that money's not transferred back and sure. forth. Just product and people. Mm-hmm. So there's the construction aspect. That after you know you've you've uh, done all of that testing as far as putting together a landing pad, will there be simulated landers? Will there be giant blasts of, of rocket uh, thrust <laughs> on top of this uh, landing pad? Sort of. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, actually, so it won't be an operational takeoff and landing pad. Mm-hmm. There won't be things taking off over the ocean and landing. Uh, but what we are going to do is put a uh, a small rocket engine on a support gantry that won't fly, but it'll allow us to test um, how well the pad that we build holds up under a rocket engine exhaust. Uh, so we'll look for uh, erosion of the pads. We'll look at how the the uh, gases move in between the joints of the pavers that, that were put together and uh, evaluate how well the, the landing pad holds up to uh, an engine firing. Sounds great. But it how won't f- really take off. It'll right. just be a Still sounds exciting fire. to me. How how far off are you from that step? And will we see it on YouTube? <laughs> yeah, I want to watch it. Wouldn't that be cool? Yeah, we uh, just had a press briefing today. It included the county of Hawaii, and they, they all want to come for the rocket engine firing. <laughs> so that's a great idea. And uh, we're going to spend the next six weeks or so, beginning Monday, building the landing pad, putting these pavers down, and then grooming the outer apron of the landing pad which is 60 feet in diameter, down at a quarry here just south of Hilo. And then uh, in the first of the year, we're going to begin to do some of these rocket engine tests to evaluate the performance of the pad that we constructed. Exciting. So, yeah, that should be pretty exciting, seeing uh, fire and flames. And <laughs> yeah, uh, and Rob, definitely you got to invite us over to uh, check that out. I want to I want to see some of the, uh, some of that yeah, rocket engine. Yeah, that'd be amazing. We'll do that. Well, very good. So where can we keep up with uh, what's going on with Pisces? Well, uh, we have a website um, that that you can go to, and um, let me let me pull. No, it that's up okay, here no, Rob. No worries. We'll we'll put it up on our show notes later on. I, I can. I'm pretty yeah. sure that people can find uh, Pisces if they Google it. But uh, we'll put it up at uh, bitemarkscafe.org. Very good. And thanks, Rob, for joining us. Thanks for your time today. I was uh, excited to be on, and we'll look forward to seeing you over here in January for the Rocket Engine. Sounds, Sounds good. good. Sounds good. <laughs> Thanks, Rob. Well, we'll take a short break, and when we return, we'll be joined by Kanisa Serafin, Joanna Philipoff, and 
Anushka Fauci to talk about Hawaii's intertidal zone. What can we learn from this special intersection between the land and the ocean? Of course, we'd love to hear your thoughts or questions as part of the conversation. If you're a teacher in particular, you might want to be paying closer attention. You can give us a call at 941-3689, or if you're on the neighbor islands, like Rob, you can call 877-941-3689. And of course, we're back in the studio live. You can catch us on Twitter as well, at BiteMarks or at Hawaii. This is BiteMarks Cafe. All dinosaurs didn't really look like those enormous beasts in the film Jurassic Park. Dinosaurs are portrayed as these lizard-like animals, but we know now that almost all carnivorous dinosaurs were covered in some kind of feather. I'm Sarah McConnell. Join me for With Good Reason. Thursdays at 6.30 on Hawaii Public Radio. Next time in Studio 360, take the dark lyricism of The National, add the electro-pop of Menomina, and you've got a punchy, terrific new indie rock super Elvi performs live next time in Studio 360 from PRI and WNYC. Friday at 4 p.m. following Fresh Air. Support for Bite Marks Cafe comes from the HPR Local Talk Show Fund, which helps Hawaii Public Radio sustain and grow its locally produced talk show programming. Mahalo to contributors Bush Consulting, Sacred Hearts Academy, and Hawaii Supply. Welcome back to Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozawa. And joining us today are Kanisa Serafin, Joanna Filipoff, and Anushka Fauci, and of course, Kanisa, we've had her on before. She's uh, at the University of Hawaii Sea Grant College, and she's the program uh, director for the Center for Marine Science Education, also currently the lead PI of a three-year grant from the United States Department of Education Institute for Teaching Aquatic Science Inquiry. Joanna, meanwhile, is a uh, program manager, or actually, uh, and a PhD candidate in educational psychology. She's the co-PI of this project. And Anushka, meanwhile, is an education specialist for the University of Hawaii's Department of Biology and co-founder of Kahi Kai, which we'll hear more about as well. And of course, we want to ask these questions like, what can we learn by studying the intertitles? And of course, if you're a teacher or interested in this sort of title zone, give us a call here. That number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. Kanisa, Joanna, and Anushka, welcome to Bite Marks Cafe. Thanks for having Thank us. Thank you. Thanks for having us. Now, you know, we love acronyms here at Bite Marks Cafe. Scientists do as well. That's right. And, you know. You just realized. I just realized I had a light bulb go off that Opihi is an acronym. And what does it stand for? It stands for our project in Hawaii's intertidal. It's amazing how, you know, these... The words just line up They perfectly. just line up perfectly. But, Kanisa, so tell us a little bit about Opihi and what is the actual objective of this program? Well, the purpose of the program is to, like you said, study the intertidal environment. And the reason why it's called our project is because it is our project collectively. So we're working with teachers and students and also undergraduate researchers from the University of Hawaii to survey and monitor the intertidal environment here in Hawaii. Um, no, no, what's, you know, we've had 
deep sea exploration guys come on you know we've of course we you know we talk about the the terrestrial area what's so interesting about the intertidal zone i mean these little tide pools and what what what's so interesting about that intersection of land and ocean well, that's a great question. I think that uh, before this project started about 10 years ago, actually in 2003, most people, scientists included, didn't think that the intertidal area in Hawaii was very interesting mm. because compared to other places, um, especially like continental areas on the mainland, our intertidal area is not very big. Our tidal range is quite small. Mm-hmm. But after studying it, these students actually were able to contribute to significant scientific findings showing that Hawaii's inner title is, is really diverse. Anushka. Anushka. And yes. actually, so I was, when it started out, it started actually out through a graduate student, Taylor Zabin, which was in my lab where I did my um, um, PhD in. And one reason she wanted to study intertidal is she was interested in invasive species and she was looking at the introduced barnacle which was living in intertidal as Mm -hmm. many introduced species do and she realized there was just no data out for Hawaii. Mm. So she and a friend who ended up was a lot of in education, Erin Baumgartner, they were looking, okay, how can we get a lot of um, data from the intertidal quick in and that's kind of how this whole thing kind of started. Joanna, Yes, you know, the, uh, just for people that are <laughs> listening to the radio, in order for you to get your time, you have to raise your hand in the studio. <laughs> Joanna so was very yes, eager yes, to speak. So, Jana, Joanna? Uh, well, Anushka just gave a nice segue that I wanted to jump in on. Sure. And that is, uh, this is a citizen science project. Uh, we love so, citizen science. Uh, it has scientific and educational goals. And so, uh, Anushka commented that there, this is a environment that there wasn't a lot of data on and it's it's difficult to study it's it's a narrow along the coastline and it's only really exposed for a limited time period mostly in the spring and summer low tides in daytime and so uh, how do you collect data on this environment you train a cadre of students so the students in 6th through 12th grade went out 10 years ago and and collected data. We trained them to collect data, so they were being scientists and researchers in the field. Mm. Wait, 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 wait. <laughs> you know, 10 years ago, you were probably tw- 10 years old. So <laughs> how did, how did, how were you involved with this 10 years ago? I was one of the program managers of it 10 years ago. Wow. So Anushka um, mentioned Chela. She was the really originator in many respects of the program. Um, and then she sort of cycled out. It was through an NSF grant, mm-hmm, a mm-hmm. GK through 12 grant, where budding scientists like Chela and myself and, and other people were partnered with teachers. And so the teachers taught us about teaching and education, and we brought science into their classroom. And so 10 years ago, I was one of the people that went out with the students and collected data. So this project is really exciting for me because I get to come back and um, sort of revisit. Wow, that's great. That's so, Kanisa, meanwhile, essentially this is kind of an update to that data set and we're getting more current information and we can be able to study the delta, the changes in the information that's collected? Exactly. So we're trying to take a look at how the intertidal areas that were studied 10 years ago, um, how they've changed today, and specifically, like um, Anushka mentioned, invasive species. So one of our hypotheses is that invasive species presence and abundance has probably increased and may have increased 
more in areas that are heavily affected by runoff or um, other anthropogenic effects like nutrient flows mm-hmm, uh, into mm-hmm. those intertidal areas. Um, in addition to places where overharvesting um, of algae or other species might have provided an area where those invasive species can come in and um, take over. And we're talking to Kinesa Serafin, Joanna Filipoff, and Anushka Fauci about Project Opihi and studying the intertidal zone. If you are curious, or in fact you are an explorer of those intertidal zones, we'd love to get questions from you. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. Now, you, uh, I'm wondering for someone like me who probably needs to get out more often, uh, Kanisa, <laughs> can you give an example uh, in Oahu geography what a well-known intertidal zone area is? I'm thinking maybe Keiki Beach on the North Shore with the really wide kind of tide pools between the beach and the ocean. But when someone is trying to envision the areas you're talking about, what would some of those areas be? So um, there's two kind of different types of intertidal areas in Hawaii. There's wave-dominated areas where, ironically, you might find the limpet species opihi pretty commonly. And then there's the more uh, tidally dominated areas, which are rocky benches. Um, You might find them out uh, like at Sandy Beach near Makapu or even Diamond Head on the south side. Um, Sand Island has some. And then the areas you mentioned on on the North Shore. So they're, they're around, but they're usually... You know, maybe a hundred feet, a few hundred feet in length, Mm -hmm. and they're often adjacent to sandy areas. So they're sort of rocky benches that will become exposed, usually only at at low tide. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yeah, Joanna. Oh, so Kenisa is explaining where we would take students out into the intertidal. So the intertidal is everywhere. (laughs) So there's sandy intertidal areas, and there's cliff intertidal areas as well. Where, as Kanisa was saying, there are actual opihi, not so much on Oahu, but uh, due to safety concerns sure. and logistics with students, we... Uh, Don't send them into the Not quite ready for, <laughs> for opihi man to be yeah. reenacted. Yeah. One of the most well-known uh, intertidal areas, I think, on Oahu would be Makapu. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's very beautiful uh, tide pools, which are, are not as common uh, in all intertidal areas, but there's some really nice ones. Anushka, um, you know, uh, Bird and I spend a lot of time in the early mornings over at uh, Magic Island, Alamoana Beach Park. Certainly there's a lot of conversations always about Waikiki, sand replenishment and such because there's man-made barriers involved here. Um, a lot of people who think when, when I'm hearing these descript- descriptions of these rugged shores, they sound beautiful, but for people who have a different vision of what an ideal shoreline would be, these are not their favorite beaches. So uh, when you're thinking about someplace that is really well uh, trodden, like, say, Wake, off Waikiki or Alamoana Beach, where I do see these rocky, uh, you know, reaches that you can see when the tide goes out, um, are, is there value there or is that or are those areas pretty much lost causes because of the human element? I mean, I don't think any of those. I mean, and once... One thing is with the project, we want to look at any any kind. Like we want to mm. survey all possible accessible um, intertidal zones, so not just you know the ones we think are the prime, um, because we want to look at what are the diversities and 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 look at maybe what um, could be the differences among those. I mean, there was recently stories about you know sunscreen and their its impact oh, yes, on the, yes, yes. the ocean environment. So I could imagine a survey, right. say in Waikiki, would find a less diverse right, species. Right, right, so. right. Or or because there's more nutrients, with more runoff, you might have more algae. So you may have more algae, but less other things. Um, definitely, that could be a problem. And one thing we are adding in this year 
actually which is not part 10 years ago is we're doing some water quality sample which is exactly where you're getting at so to see kind of what parameters could maybe have an effect on differences in diversity and abundance of certain species or not um, in these different locations. Now, now Joanna, you mentioned uh, 10 years ago the study focused on invasive species and uh, looking at maybe these barnacles. Has the project evolved to encompass other types of, you know, let's say, uh, creatures and fauna of the ocean, whether it's limu or, you know, whether it's crabs or, you know, the different sort of reef fish. There's a whole abundant assortment of species that live in the inner tidal. How expansive has your project uh, become? Uh, so we survey the dominant species in the intertidal. That's uh, over 60 on average for each intertidal area that we looked at. Uh, the cool thing is that we actually validated the student data in 2007, and the students are taking data that is comparable to professional researchers Ooh. after they've gone through some training and practice. Sure. Mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. So we have ID cards, and, and there's a... You know, we're not just throwing people out there, <laughs> but they're, they're, they're looking at way beyond barnacles, I will say. Like, mm-hmm. we look at invertebrates, mostly limu, because it doesn't move, um, and that helps <laughs> when, you, when you take 20 students out into a, a field. Well, 10 years ago, <laughs> limu has probably radically changed, because I remember when you could actually go and harvest limu out at Eva Beach, and now you, it's rare to even find ogo out there. We're actually partnering with some people that have done surveys at Eva Beach for um, about 10 years as well. And they have a, a longer-term data set, but just on this this one area. So our data set starts at about the same time, but then we had a lag. Mm-hmm. So it'll be interesting to compare what they have found in Eva, and we are going to compare that to other areas. So, Kanisa, can you tell us about sort of now the intersection with the, the with teachers, with the educational side of it? I love, I already, you know, I have uh, um, two of my sons are coming into the high school age, and certainly they could spend more time at an intertidal zone versus playing Minecraft at home. But <laughs> how do you make the case to a teacher that this is, you know, how do you integrate it into a curriculum, for example? So that's a great question, and, and that's actually part of why we're here. So we're... Um, recruiting teachers for the professional development. We're actually still working on the research aspect through the University of Hawaii and human subjects protocols and that kind of thing. But for the professional development, we've started recruiting and um, we're looking for teacher applicants uh, through, Joanna mentioned, 6th through 12th grade. Mm-hmm. And we have integrated the components that we'll be teaching teachers into our Exploring Our Fluid Earth curriculum. So we do have a curriculum for middle and high school teachers that is aligned to the next generation science standards. And it's online. It's freely accessible. Um, And so teachers in the program will be not only instructed in how to do OPE protocols in the field and how to teach the concepts to their students, but they'll also um, learn how those concepts can be connected to other aspects of, say, physics or chemistry or biology or ecology so that they can articulate the OPE program with the content that they're already trying to teach for their classroom. Mm -hmm, And mm -hmm. we understand that there will be a little bit of adaptation that needs to happen probably in each case, for each teacher, um, we're working with the state science specialist, Lauren Kalp, to help make that happen. And she's also going to be one of our guest people that comes in and speaks with the teachers and, and helps them through that process. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, the intertidal has been around for many, many years. And 
students, I mean, teachers, teachers <laughs> have been teaching for many, many years. And is it only now becoming uh, a subject that gets incorporated into class curriculum? I is think there, is there, I mean, there is, obviously there's a gap that you're, you're, you're filling and, and it's a needed thing. But uh, what have teachers done in the past about teaching about this sort of area of the ocean? Well, I think, like, as we mentioned, it was ignored largely by lots of scientists. So, in turn, lots of educators, too. There are pockets of programs. I know that schools out in Mililani, for example, take their students <laughs> Go Trojans. out to the intertidal. Um, and they have some wonderful um, examples of, of great accessible intertidal areas um, on that side of Oahu. Um, but... It's something that's becoming more important. And, and really, I think our program is stressing not just learning about this area, but the way in which they're learning. So mm-hmm. that they're learning science through this authentic process of inquiry and learning science by doing science. And as Joanna mentioned, it's, it's really citizen science. So these students will be working on a project together in their classroom that's also being worked on by other students on their island and other students across the state. And they can access that data. And we will talk to their teachers about that data and what we're finding out. And so they will get a sense of uh, science as a larger community and really being a part of something that's important and valuable and bringing that human context to the scientific process. Uh, Anushka, can you kind of give us an example of what some of the perhaps experiments that the students might uh, conduct uh, in the intertidal? I mean, the the basic, basic is like general surveying techniques you Mm -hmm. can use on land or underwater, which apply also for the intertidal, which means you pull out transect tapes, Mm -hmm. and then at certain points you put down a, a quadrat and you do percent cover. You look what's there, the abundance of it and what species is there. So that's kind of very basic thing, you know, you no, do no, at you, um, any, many levels. So I know they you, do that. you said that you don't throw the kids in the water, but you do have <laughs> them get a little wet, right? So how do they how do they actually do the survey? Do they go in with snorkels? Do they just do, a, you know, like a, a, a viewing um, thingamajig? <laughs> Joanna. Um, I'm glad you asked that uh, because I think one of the reasons that maybe the inner title hasn't been utilized in some respects as much as we would like is because, you know, it's it's sometimes difficult. To, you know, it's a marine environment. Sometimes getting permissions to go there is, is difficult. But intertidal is great because you don't get wet past your knees. So it's a safe environment. Uh, they do, we do go out on low tides and we lay transects and quadrats and uh, we hope the waves stay down. <laughs> mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. But we go over safety protocols and, and sort of uh, how you can monitor this area while um, being respectful of the organisms and the impact that you're going to be having on that environment. Now, you know, I, I, I heard the term lost cause be thrown out here, and I want to bring up a lost <laughs> cause, or perhaps maybe you are studying it and, and it isn't a lost cause, but Pearl Harbor. Guys, I run around Pearl Harbor and the bike path, and I like to look at the strange creatures that are growing out of the uh, waters in, in the Pearl Harbor. Are you Looking at some of the, is that considered an intertidal? Is that is that uh, something that perhaps uh, has some history in terms of how it used to be? It was called Pearl Harbor at one time because there were actually oysters <laughs> growing there. There's still a lot of mollusk there that uh, you can see the little clams and things like that. But you know the condition of the waters there have you know drastically drastically declined. So I'm just kind of wondering if that's one of your study areas. We have eight sites from 10 years ago, and we'd like to revisit those. One of them is uh, sort of 
mirror close to Pearl Harbor. It's a it's Sand Island, and we have Eva Beach. We don't actually have a site in in Pearl Harbor. You should go down to like Westlock and just <laughs> check out the condition there. I think it's a. Uh, you know, there's there's intertidal sites all over the place, so we're sort of having to pick and choose a little bit. But <laughs> can't um, <I> influence. <laughs> we're happy to consider adding sites. Oh, okay. Well, very quickly, um, Kanisa, perhaps is that kind of shoreline that's not rocky but not sand, like almost swampy. Is that an intertidal, or is that because it's an it, intersection it, of a river and a, and the ocean? That well, wait, wait. The Pearl Harbor is not an intersection of a river. I mean, a, that's the ocean, right? I mean, it's the Pearl Harbor <laughs> ocean. <laughs> I didn't do well in geography, but <laughs> is a swampy area an intertidal area? Right. So intertidal is anywhere from the high tide to the low okay, tide. Okay. So it's the part that's exposed in the interim between those. Yeah, I think the two tides do frames. affect Pearl Harbor. I mean, I, I see how you know where the high tide is and the low tide is. Anyway, he's he's a lobbyist. Yeah, I'm, for lo- Pearl I'm, Harbor, I'm, 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 I'm lobbying for Pearl Harbor. <laughs> but we want to hold that thought. We want to come back and talk more about Pearl Harbor. We'll be right back after this uh, short break to continue our conversation with Kanisa Serafin, Joanna Filipoff, and Anushka Fauci about. The Hawaii's intertidal. And what are some of the other aspirations and future plans for the OPE project? We also want to learn more about Kahikai, so stay tuned. You can give us a call at 941-3689 or 877-941-3689. You're listening to Bite Marks Cafe. In 1913, this piece of music, this one right here, caused a riot. They screamed, there was blood. All simply because of air pressing against your ear. This week on Radio Lab, we ask why. And try and figure out what is it exactly about music that can sometimes drive people mad. Literally mad. Saturday morning at 10. On the next On Being, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. The Bible is saying the whole time, don't think that God is a simple as you are. You know, don't think we can confine God into our categories. God is bigger than religion. I'm Krista Tippett. Please join us. Sunday morning at 10, following Weekend Edition. Welcome back. This is Bite Marks Cafe. I'm Bert Lum. And I'm Ryan Ozao. And we're talking to Kanisa Serafin, Joanna Filipoff, and Anushka Fauci about the Opihi Project and Marine Education. And, of course, you can give us a call here. That number is 941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 from the neighbor islands. And, of course, right before the break, I do not want to let this go. <laughs> I am still lobbying for Pearl Harbor, and I would love to see some sort of uh, historical study. Perhaps there was something done. Maybe there isn't anything done prior to the condition that it is now. And, you know, it would be it would be great to see what... Here, a pristine Pearl Harbor could potentially look like. What would have to happen for you, great thinkers, to consider looking at Pearl Harbor? (laughs) (laughs) Well, as Joanna mentioned, we're trying to revisit our sites that we previously studied. So during that 2003 to 2007 period, Mm -hmm. and we had eight sites on Oahu. So our primary goal for the research-wise is Mm -hmm. to go back to their eight sites. But for the education goals... We want teachers to go to their local environment. So we mm. actually have two projects going on and, and funded separately. We have the NOAA 
teacher professional development get in the water project and then we have our sea grant research undergraduate project and they're working together but definitely we want teachers to be able to take students to the intertidal sites that are in their backyard Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. There's a plug for a teacher located near Pearl Harbor to apply for our project, in which case we would help them to work in that area. And this is primarily for the um, from sixth grade to high school? Right. We're working in the age. middle and high school areas because we want the students' data to be able to um, count for our, our scientific project as well. So, uh, and then Leeward, Co- Leeward Community College is like right on the shore of Pearl Harbor. So, or Waipahu High School. Yeah, Waipahu High School. And we've, we've previously had a show where students, was it at Iolani, that were doing studies in their quote unquote backyard with yeah, the Alawai Canal. Uh-huh. So, I do agree that there's certainly that value to teachers to take advantage of the environments where their schools are in to, to kind of do these, uh, to do these studies. Now, Anushka, one of the partner organizations was uh, called Kahi Kai. And so, but but it's something that you work with as well. So I, I wanted to learn a little bit more about that organization. Right, and talking about local places, just this morning was out with third graders from Hahayona mm-hmm. um, Elementary School, and we were at Pico Lagoon. And mm-hmm. so exactly same thing, right, to just make them understand their environment. So Kahi Kai, what we do, we are founded by four marine biologists. Two, meanwhile, moved back to France. And we have a love for beautiful images, but the ocean. So we want to um, raise awareness of like basically just just uh, to take care of the ocean using visual tools and mm. we're helping teachers how to do that and I've been in and we've been involved with science outreach for Malama Honua for Hokulea's Worldwide Voyage. Mm-hmm. Um, we do it with different things. We do um, workshops with teachers in school. Um, we help um, Hokulea and Hikianalia. And the latest thing we developed, these um, plankton activity cards. Oh, okay. So I have she's a showing set us here, some cards here. Oh, deal me in. Which yeah. are basically <laughs> just images made with our little cell scopes, little microscopes. Well, so, you know, just for the benefit of our viewers, I mean, our listeners. Well, of we, course, Bert's going to post take a picture of Of course, he'll post Well, anyway, you can, you can look at them. They're beautiful images of all the uh, diversity of plankton. And we basically use plankton in there, but it feeds in with the inner tidal because most inner tidal organisms have a planktonic larval stage, so it all fits in. And um, so these cards are meant basically to integrate for teachers who want to integrate Malamo Honua science projects in their classroom. And they don't come with a curriculum, but they come with extensive information um, for each card. Yeah, these are these are incredible. And so they basically the idea is that teachers can then use them however they want. With first graders, they can just do matching games just to get students used to these forms because I think one issue is, you know, we talked about intertidal not being much in the classroom, but I think in general the ocean, ocean organisms are just not taught much in the classroom. Mm -hmm. And we are in the middle of the Pacific, so it should be more something which is taught. Horseshoe worm. Where do you get horseshoe Well, so these are actually, we got a grant through the Atherton Foundation Uh and with the Malama Learning Centers, our fiscal sponsors, because we don't have our um, tax nonprofit status yet because we're busy doing things um, (laughs) instead of doing paperwork. Um, But so with our fiscal sponsor, Malama Learning Center and the Atherton Foundation, we got funding to print those. These are actually Moo business cards. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's what I was Um, To print those cards and give them away for teachers. Ah. So teachers can contact us at info at kahikai.org and request the sample. And we just ask them, we give them for free. We ask them to give us feedback on how they use them, what grade, what subjects, so we can basically build a bank of 
how to use our plankton activity cards. Well, I definitely wanted to hear about it because, I mean, when you talk about using imagery to raise awareness, I mean, we're living in the Instagram, Facebook share, meme, Tumblr age, and when you have a beautiful picture of even, like, the, the most weird-looking plankton, you know, I can see how that can uh, add someone's interest or curiosity to it. And then when I Googled it, there's even, like, a, a, a stock photography sort of resource when you're looking for pictures for your own productions. You know, you, you, you forgot can Snapchat. be something from that. Okay, and Bert <laughs> is, is very distracted now because he's posting on Snapchat. So uh, a very cool project for sure. Great. So, uh, oh, I want to welcome Will to Bite Marsh Cafe. He's been patiently waiting to... Uh, While we're playing with cards. Yes, uh, provide some uh, good questions for our esteemed panel here. Will, welcome to Bite Marsh Cafe. Yes, sir. Thank you. Um, so thank you for the work you're doing monitoring the... Um, all right. Oh, well, well we are, that was <laughs> a, a bit abrupt. We're glad that he we'll appreciates the We'll try to get him work. back. Yes, uh, we'll give us a call, and uh, we'll, we'll get you back on. Uh, so, you know, with these cards, I mean, they're pretty cool. Are there other kinds of learning and teaching, uh, let's say, collateral that you folks are developing? Um, this is kind of just came out. So, I mean, one thing is we're trying to expand on them. You know, we are, I already have a lot of ideas. I mean, we have a lot of more pictures. <laughs> mm-hmm. But also we're working together. We also have a banner about food webs and things which include the pictures. Yeah. And I'm actually just expanding. I'm going in Saturday to Tahiti to do a teacher institute with Tahitian and Hawaiian teachers. Cool. Which connects traditional knowledge and voyaging. This is not part of, this is not Opihi, right? This is no. Kai, diff- kai. Yeah, another, another project. Okay. But the other thing is I'm just in contact with Yolani School, which I live right close, right around the corner of Yolani School. They mm-hmm. have um, classes in app development. So I think at the end, like probably next semester. Oh, is that with Gabriel? Um, I'm. I just this is just starting, okay, okay, okay. starting, fresh off the press. No, uh, we hope that we're collaborating with some of their classes. I mm-hmm. think they have girls who code, and they have another yes, group yes. who that ideally with that information put into an app, so done by a student, Great. and then can be used with teachers, the information and the pictures, and you know. Absolutely. Now, when we're talking about resources, I love Moo cards, so maybe that's why I'm responding <laughs> so well to these. But, Kanisa, you did briefly mention that there's curriculum that goes with this that is available freely online. I mean, that was only a, was that, one that was a substantial amount of information that was put out. I think it was only announced this summer. So um, if I were a teacher and I was looking for a, a nicely packaged set of materials, I'm pers- if I'm personally passionate about marine biology and wanted to find something that I could implement in the classroom, I mean, what specifically is it that you've put online to help teachers like that? So uh, our program is called Exploring Our Fluid Earth, and you can locate it at exploringourfluidearth.org. It is a revision of two texts, The Living Ocean and The Fluid Earth, that were produced by the University of Hawaii's Curriculum Research and Development Group um, originally, you know, 20 years ago, actually, and we've updated them and put them online as sort of an experiment in online teaching and online collaboration amongst teachers. So the website not only has curriculum and activities for students, but it also has an interactive teacher community. And it is online and available, but the caveat is that we're also continuing to update it. So Mm -hmm. kind of the beauty of the online world is that we didn't have to put everything on there at once. We have our a lot of material up there, and we will be updating it significantly through the next year. And then we also plan to continually 
provide new content um, and new information. And it sounds like just like Project Opihi, these are things that you've also crafted with an eye toward what a teacher needs to teach in terms of their curriculum and the requirements for, for, for education. Right. We began the project looking at the ocean literacy principles, which are a set of concepts that educators and scientists came together and decided that Every person should know and understand about the ocean by the time they graduate from 12th grade. So mm-hmm. that these are concepts that are fundamental to knowing about the world around you, and they, they deal with the ocean. And in addition to that, as the next generation science standards have come out, we've aligned our curriculum um, to those standards as well. And as we work with professional development, for example, this Opihi project, we are then updating those pieces and it goes into the curriculum and then we use the curriculum and the teacher community as part of the professional development. So, Kanisa, I'm, I'm curious, has the response with our teaching community been, been positive? I mean, what's the, the interest level in, in joining in and, and you know, learning what you folks are, are coming up with? People are responding to the curriculum really well in terms of going to the site and looking around and using materials. We haven't been as successful in getting people to interact in the teacher community. So Mm. folks in our professional developments interact in the teacher community, but um, we seem to have a lot of lurkers at this point. Mm. So I guess... So, myself, I'm a lurker, you know, on Amazon. I like to read what other people post, but I don't often <laughs> post myself. And that seems to be where we're at with I our see, curriculum right now. Now, Joanna, um, when somebody is, uh, as, as when you're, you're recruiting teachers, and I think the deadline is coming up, so that's why it's important that we spread the word. Um, in addition to giving them the training so they can help their teach their students do the protocol for these surveys and things like that, what are some of the other things that uh, a teacher would experience? I mean, they, uh, presumably they would get a little wet up to their knees, as you said, but you know, what other uh, benefits can you articulate for an educator? Sure. So you're working uh, with and with scientists. So scientists will be attending the professional development. We also uh, have about three hundred dollars worth of supplies that we will provide your classroom, a small stipend of about $150. We also help with buses to the intertidal site. And I think um, very importantly, too, we have a lot of connections with people like the the Marine Option Program that Mm -hmm. we will be bringing students out to help on the field trips to be those uh, scientists that are with the students and partnering with the students in order to collect data, but also to serve as role models in terms of uh, this is what it's like to be a, a marine scientist. So, so Kanisa, for the teacher to get involved, are they going through like a certification process? And then is that certification process primarily online or is it do you folks have face-to-face, you know, sort of classroom traditional workshops for the teachers? Oh, that's a great question. So it's a blended opportunity. There's online components, which consist of um, sort of lecture components and as well as a certification quiz. So once they've learned their species, they can do a quiz as well as in-person, in-the-field activities. So this program is funded, the teacher part is funded by NOAA BWET, which is their Bay Watershed Education and Training Program. So the whole purpose is to get teachers and students out into the field and get them interacting in the environment. So that's certainly a large component, Mm -hmm. but we also do have that interactive sort of online lecture component and then an interactive online feedback where teachers will report back on what they've done in their classroom. And that way we can do the program statewide. Mm -hmm. So... Mm Yeah, Anushka, is there is there like a requirement for us? Is it only science teachers? I mean, would a drama teacher get involved? I mean, how how does yeah? What's the what's the what's the criteria for (laughs) getting involved? Can 
or can you can you be a parent uh, chaperone and a volunteer right. without Ryan wants to join? <laughs> I guess we we're looking for volunteers. We'll need volunteers on the field, so anybody could really participate. I think teachers, primarily science teachers. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess the requirement is they want to they should be willing to learn new things. Um, definitely, they will have to <laughs> get wet. Um, so I guess the main thing is there should be so or sciences or, or any of the STEM subjects. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. okay. Um, so the other thing is, yes, they need to be willing. If they don't know the intertidal species, yes, they need to be willing to learn those. I think that might be maybe one of the hurdles, mm-hmm. one a little hurdle. But but I think, you know, they they can learn and we can help them. And we hear that's what we're here for. And that's the MOP students. That's one reason we, we geared towards MOP students also, because many of them have ID, the identification courses um, organized by MOP um, so that those students will be a great help in their fields to help with those identifications. You said MOP? What what does that stand for? Marine Option Program. Oh, got it. Sorry, sorry. Okay, great. Very good. Kanisa, were you going to say something? Yeah, I was going to jump in on Anushka and just mention that some of our best teachers um, in our programs have actually been in mathematics or we've had some partnerships between an English teacher and a science teacher from the same school that came and did a professional development. And as long as they are willing to implement the program in our class, in their class, and like Anushka said, learn the species and can tie it to what they're needing to teach in their mm-hmm, curriculum. Mm-hmm. Now, in the last 30 seconds or so, I mean, can you tell us how uh, how long will this program last? What's the sustainability model for this? Well, the curriculum is out there. So um, as we said, we're putting it online. Teachers can continually access this and they'd be able to do it repeatedly with their students. But they would need your mentoring. (laughs) That's true. Um, But hopefully the curriculum is a little bit um, self-explanatory so they could learn through themselves. It wouldn't be as good as if they had us (laughs) with them. But the study period is two years. So we are looking to collect scientific data for at least two years. And then we'll see what the funding gods have to say. So if somebody, if there's now a teacher fired up and wants to get, get into the intertidal with their students, where can they go for more information? Joanna. Uh, well, you could email me, so philippo at hawaii.edu. You can also go to our application, which is tinyurl.com, opihi, O-P-I-H-I, 2015 flyer. All right. Well, we will, of course, put yes. the link Did in you our send show that to notes me? as make, well. Make sure you send that to me. It's I'll put the, it up. It's on, in the notes here. Okay, very yeah, good. Yeah. I'll, I'll at bitemarkscafe.org. Very good. Kanisa Serafin is an associate professor and director of the Center for Marine Science Education. Joanna Filipov is the program manager and PI of uh, this program. And Anushka Fauci is an education specialist. And we want to thank you all for joining us today. Mahalo. Thank you for having thank us. You. And thank you for listening to Bite Marks Cafe. Join us next week when we'll talk about the newest cohort from the Accelerator Program at UH, Accelerate UH. Well, very good. If you miss any part of this edition, you can find the podcast of tonight's show on bitemarkscafe.org. And if you have any comments or suggestions, email us at feedback at bitemarks.org. And, of course, you can find us on Twitter. I'm at BiteMarks. And you can follow me at Hawaii. Our engineer is David Chung, and our executive producer is Beth Ann Koslovich. And we leave you with our song pick of the week. Here's a band that I love, and this is an oldie but goodie, Ocean Blue, and a song called Emotions Ring. See you next week on another edition of Bite Marks Cafe. Bill.